0: Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and today we're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. As Churchill referred to the Russians as a riddle wrapped in an enigma shrouded in mystery, So biblical scholars speak of Melchizedek the same way. He is a unique person in redemptive history, very brief appearance in the book of Genesis, mentioned again in the Psalms and then six times in this book. But often sermons on Melchizedek turn into a splendid exercise in missing the point. And we do not want to do that today. We want to hit it right on target. And we need help to be able to do that. So here now the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. gave a tenth of the spoils and those descendants of levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers though these also are descended from abraham but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from abraham and blessed him who had the promises it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let us pray. Father, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, and so we pray, especially as we study this passage together, about a relatively obscure Old Testament figure that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to see Jesus and to understand what we are being taught about Jesus as we are being taught about Melchizedek. And we pray, O God, that you would apply this truth to our hearts so that we would understand and have hope and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two men were heard or overheard leaving a church service in which they had been to a congregational meeting. And the purpose of the congregational meeting was for the church to buy a relatively expensive chandelier because the church was dark in the middle and needed more light. And so they held a congregational meeting to talk about the chandelier, what it cost, and to vote on it. And uh, these two men had, had not even been to church in a year, but when they heard money was about to be spent, they thought they should show up. And so they showed up and they heard all the conversation going on, And after it was over and the vote was taken and the church voted to do it, one man was overheard saying to the other, I don't know what in the world they're talking about chandelier. Number one, nobody in this church knows how to spell it. Number two, nobody knows how to play it. And number three, what we need in this church is more light anyway. (laughs) That is precisely what it means to come and look at the character of Melchizedek. He's often uh, someone who has speculated about a great deal. And so we're looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning as we continue to make our way through this great letter, which is actually a sermon or an exhortation. And as we look at it, look at the last two verses of, of chapter 6 we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek and so when we think about that because of that we'll see the reasons why the author of hebrews is going into an extended discussion regarding this mysterious man named Melchizedek in this passage. And we've been looking at the book of Hebrews for several weeks now and there seems to be, without a doubt, a theme that is emerging more and more is the superiority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. As our great high priest, as our savior, as a person who is both God and man. And so Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is a better savior than Moses. Uh, he's he's a better priest and the author of Hebrews is arguing to his congregation and to you and me that Jesus is the Savior we need that he is the high priest we need he is a better high priest and a better Savior than we will find anywhere or everywhere else and he has piled up biblical arguments and that's what he's going to do in this passage today So if you were going to look at Hebrews 4.14, you will see that Jesus is called there a great high priest. And throughout the section from chapter 4.14 to the end of chapter 7, various arguments are made to show that Jesus is a great high priest. But back in chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, the first time Jesus is connected with Melchizedek. But nothing is made of that, and several of you have asked me after the services why I have not said more about Melchizedek. Am I just going to gloss over that, skip over that, and move on? No. I was holding that for this week because it is in this passage where the most is said about Melchizedek and Jesus. And you know, as I told you earlier, Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14 in the passage after Abraham rescues Lot uh, from the marauding kings of the Canaanites who captured him and his family and has taken him off. And so Abraham goes after him uh, like uh, the elder brother should have gone after the prodigal Abraham goes after him recaptures him and brings him back and when he does this king Melchizedek the king of Salem a Canaanite king mysteriously appears and blesses Abraham seems to come out of nowhere and then Abraham offers tithes to him and that's the one place where Melchizedek is mentioned in all of the first five books of the Bible But he's mentioned again one other time in the Old Testament in Psalm 110, verse 4. It's that great psalm that begins, a psalm of David that says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so in that psalm, a psalm about a king priest who is David's Lord, Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord says to that king priest, I have made you a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the person of Melchizedek, I told you earlier, is mentioned eight times in the Bible, two times in the Old Testament, and guess where all the rest of them are in this book of Hebrews. They're all right here. And why? Why would they be so numerous in uh, the book of Hebrews? Well, understand the original audience and understand the author and the document and how all three work together to communicate a message to us. We do know that this was a small urban church, probably a house church, either in Rome or Alexandria, and they were receiving intense persecution. And some had turned their backs on Jesus and returned back to old covenant Judaism and were, as a result, missing the wonderful understanding of who Jesus really is. And how they're going back is going back to something inferior. Going back to something obsolete because the new and the better has come. And so in order to ward that off, but here's the problem the author faces. The problem he faces is Jesus was born in the wrong tribe. How can he be a great high priest if he's of the tribe of who? Tell me. Judah, right? Jesus is from the tribe of Judah not from the tribe of Levi. Where did all the priests come from? Levi, right? The tribe of Levi. And so while he's expounding the great truth of the high priesthood of Christ, he entertains the objection, or may have already heard the objection, that Jesus is from the, how can he be this great high priest if he wasn't born in the right tribe? And so We're right at the heart of the material that the author has to teach us about Melchizedek. And now why is he talking about Melchizedek, this obscure person for the uh, Old Testament? He wants you to understand something about Jesus. In other words, the point of Melchizedek is to point to Jesus. Don't get caught up in the person himself, but rather see that he's inserted here in this exhortation To point us beyond himself to the one who came before him and the one who came after him. So the fundamental point that we want to come away with from this text is to be far more in awe of Jesus and more trusting of him than what we need to know about Melchizedek in order that we can be built up in that way. But the fundamental point of this sermon is not that we would come away with our heads crammed full of facts about this Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, but especially that we would know Jesus. We would understand him and the offices he holds on our behalf, and that we would trust him more, and that we would have full assurance because of our trust in him, and that we would have an anchor and a hope that sustains us as we persevere in righteousness. And so you need to know, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, how great a Savior our Savior is. And you need to know how great a high priest your great high priest is. Because you've come here today, all of us have come here today with problems. Problems we can't solve. Problems that are too big for us. Problems that are eating our lunch. And we've come here today with big sins, every one of us. There are no little sins. There are no peccadilloes. They're all big sins. Why? Because they're committed against the God of the universe who is infinite and eternal and holy and pure and righteous we may consider them nothing he doesn't he doesn't and so we all need a savior every person needs a savior. the more you see your sin the more you see how much you need Jesus and the more you see Jesus the more you see your sin and that's sanctification a large part of it and so we're going to talk today about how jesus is the one who is our great savior priest and that is ultimately why the hebrew writer is writing these words this is an argument that's going to continue all the way to chapter 10 and the purpose of the argument is to show us the superiority of our hope, the superiority of Jesus. The uh, purpose of the argument is to show us the superiority of our assurance, of our forgiveness of sins, and of our assurance of salvation. All of this teaching about Melchizedek is designed to help you understand something about Jesus. And that something that you're able to understand about Jesus is to strengthen your hope, all of us, look outside of ourselves for something as a foundation to hang on to. As something that, an expectation that is certain and real and sure. We're created that way, we're hardwired that way, we're made that way, and we all hope in something. We all do, it's, it's, it's just part of the warp and woof of being a human being. It's part of the image of God in which all of us are made. We're all looking for hope. And what the writer wants to do is strengthen our hope by focusing it upon the right object. And the right object of your hope is one who has loved you more than anyone conceivably could ever possibly love you. One who has given of himself more than anyone could ever give of himself. One who was forsaken by his Father in order that you could be accepted in him, uh, in union with him by faith. And so that's what the author is doing here. So let's bear in mind as we get ready to study this Old Testament figure from the misty, mysterious past. It is introduced to us, actually in verse 20 of chapter 6, where the author says that Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this will begin in the verses that we have just read together, a long discussion about Melchizedek, and I want you to see two or three things that are taught there that that will help us focus ultimately on Jesus as our Savior and High Priest. The first thing I want you to see is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and that is a huge statement. When you consider the Old Testament, you consider the person of Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faithful. And Abraham's position in all of Scripture is huge. The covenant with Abraham is huge. And that the writer is telling us that there is a sense in which Melchizedek, now get this, a Canaanite king living in Salem, which is the site of Jerusalem to come, shows up out of nowhere... And, and uh, a lot of things ensue. So let's talk about those things. In this passage, by implication, it's going to be taught that Melchizedek is even greater than David. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and it's emphasized in two ways. In verses 1 and 2, when Melchizedek meets Abraham, what does he do? He blesses Abraham, and to him Abraham appoints a tenth part of everything. Now understand the context. Lot has been captured by petty Canaanite kings. He and his family and his possessions have been carted off into captivity. Abraham rallies about 300 or so of his men, and off they go to rescue Lot. This is the stuff that would make a really good movie. It could be a great movie. And Abraham defeats Lot's captors, brings Lot and his family back, but when he comes back, he is met by the mysterious person, Melchizedek. His very name means, Melech in Hebrew is king, Sadiq is the second part of his name, which is righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. And he comes from Salem, which means, is a derivation of the word shalom in Hebrew, which means peace. And so three things are tied up in the name of Melchizedek. He is a king, he's a king of righteousness, and peace pretty important and Abraham comes and meets this guy and he's a king over a territory in which the city Jabus will one day rest the Jebusites of course occupy the site which becomes the city of David and ultimately the city of Jerusalem and the king of Salem comes out and appears before Abraham and he blesses Abraham now that's huge Why is it huge? Because in Genesis 12, verses 1 1 through 3, we are told that it was God who blessed Abraham, and that he blessed Abraham so that Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so, when you have an encounter between this Canaanite land occupying king, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, and Abraham, you're expecting, if you know your Bible, Abraham to bless him because Abraham has received God's blessing. And Abraham's job now is to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. But it is Melchizedek that blesses Abraham. And the author draws attention to it in verse 1. He blessed him. And notice what he says in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the who? The superior. So Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham shows us that he is greater than Abraham. But not only that, Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek, which shows the greatness of Melchizedek. To him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And look at what the author of Hebrews says in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So the fact that Abraham took 10% of what he had gotten back from the Canaanites, who had kidnapped his nephew Lot, the fact that he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek shows us how great Melchizedek is. So what's the point? The point is this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And it's also the point, by the way, in passing, that Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem before David. Why is the author of Hebrews telling us that? Because he wants what he said in verse 20 of chapter 6 to soak in. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and David, then Jesus is greater than Abraham and David. That's the first part of his argument. But he also tells us the second part, which is Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, I never thought I'd say the word Melchizedek that many times (laughs) in this many minutes. I wish I could shorten his name to something like Melky. Like Floki on the uh, Vikings, right? Who? Melk? Melk? People would say, I think I'm saying milk. Huh? Mel Mel Gibson? Oh. (laughs) Tell him to make a movie about this and I'll do it. All right. I won't have to preach it, huh? Levi is the clan of Israel, listen carefully, from which all the priests come. No male in Israel that was not of the tribe of Levi could ever be a priest. If you were a tribe of of the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Dan or any of the other tribes except for Levi... You could not be a priest in Israel. You had to be in the line of Levi and Aaron. The Old Testament priesthood were all descended from Levi. And here the author of Hebrews argues Melchizedek is greater than Levi and therefore greater than the Old Testament priesthood. Now you see why the writer of Hebrews held off on talking about this. And he told them in chapter 5 they were dull of hearing. He, He wanted to say so much more. So apparently he felt, when he told him to grow up and uh, stop just living in the milk of the word but eat the meat of the word, he felt now it was time to talk about this. And it does require an Old Testament background. By the way, the whole Bible requires an Old Testament background. Let me take this on for a minute. You cannot understand the Old Testament in the way it's intended unless you understand the Old Testament. Why? Because one is the fulfillment of the other. One is th- there is a continuity between the two Testaments. Both Testaments point to Jesus. But you cannot possibly understand the book of Hebrews without a working knowledge of at least the plot and what's going on in the Old Testament. And so he tells us that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, therefore greater than the Old Testament priesthood. And how does he argue that? Well, look at what he says in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues the priest forever. He tells us two things to show the superiority of Melchizedek. Number one, he has no genealogy. No genealogy of Melchizedek is recorded in Genesis 14. We are not told where he came from or where he went. We are told very little about him. But for priest, the genealogy was quite important. If you couldn't show your gene- in your genealogy that you were from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. And think of how important that would have been in the days of New Testament when Israel had been carried off into exile and genealogies and records would have been lost. It would have been very important for a person To be able to establish themselves as being in the line of Levi in order to be a priest. But Melchizedek has no genealogy. None at all. And furthermore, unlike the Old Testament priest who changed year after year because they lived, they served, grew old, wore out, and died, he is a priest forever. So in those ways he is superior to Levi. And furthermore, look at what it says in verses 5 and 6. The descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. In the Old Testament code, you brought tithes to the priests. Some of that money was used to operate the worship of Israel. Some of that money was used for the upkeep of the tabernacle or the temple of God. And some of that money was used to support the livelihood of a priest and their families. And that was written down in the law that the Levites were to take tithes. They were to receive tithes from the people. But we're told in verse six, this man who does not have descent from Levi and received tithes from Abraham. And so again, his superiority is signified. Notice when we are told in verses nine and 10, one might even say Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. Now, I know all of you are waiting for me to tell you who Melchizedek really is. You're going to be waiting a while. (laughs) One thing we try to do when we come to Holy Scripture, sometimes we get very atomistic with it and very literalistic with it, Some of the great preachers, let's say, of the last generation who were wonderful men, godly men, great preachers, but they get lost. They can't see the forest for the trees. They get so caught up in the trees, they don't see the big picture. And this is a case in point where you've got to understand what the author is doing. He almost uses Melchizedek as a literary device, even though he's a person. So all of these things in Hebrews chapter 7 show that Melchizedek is greater than Levi and greater than the Old Testament priesthood. Now what is that meant to show? Well, it's meant to show that Jesus is greater than Levi and greater than the Old Testament priesthood because he's a priest not according to Aaron, not according to Levi, but according to whom? Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and again Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, and Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the whole argument in this is this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Jesus' priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek, and therefore greater than the priesthood of Levi and Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood. So there's the simple argument of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Melchizedek is like Jesus. In the final analysis, Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10, does not argue that Jesus is like Melchizedek. It argues that Melchizedek is like Jesus. The argument isn't that Jesus is like Melchizedek. The argument, I'm saying it again, is that Melchizedek is like Jesus. Look at verse 3 again. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. All of that would have been in the genealogy. But underline the word resembling the Son of God. Now, your pastor and his intern had... A pretty good discussion this week regarding whether or not or regarding who Melchizedek is and so we did we did some research both of us because neither one of us likes to lose and we're <laughs> we're pretty competitive and I indulged him a little bit let him let him go far enough that I could cut his head off easily but no <laughs> But anyway, Kevin believes, along with some other people, that Melchizedek is a pre incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got problems with that. I got problems with saying that. Why? Because the text says what? He resembles Jesus, but it doesn't say he is Jesus. I resemble my father. My wife tells me all the time. She looks at me from behind. It's just like uh, a three-inch taller, my dad. She says, you look just like your dad. You stand like him. You walk like him. Everything, you know, you're like him. But I'm not my father. I resemble him. I gesture like him. I move my head like him. I talk like him. I'm embarrassed to say so because I thought he was kind of goofy at times. But I guess I'm kind of goofy at times. But resemble and identity is not the same thing. And another reason is that um, some who were part of Qumran community in these scenes believed that Melchizedek was one of two people. Either he was the archangel uh, Michael or he was Shem, the son of Noah. And so there's been some investment in that. All I can tell you is the writer of Hebrews doesn't focus so much upon the identity of Melchizedek because he wants us to understand Melchizedek's relation to Jesus, which is not identity in my opinion. You can disagree with me and be wrong if you want to. No, you can disagree <laughs> with me and stand in some decent company by some decent people, but the really smart, great people, no, uh... <laughs> doesn't really matter in the final analysis that's not what the argument about is about the statement is melchizedek is like jesus it's not that jesus is like melchizedek it is that melchizedek is like jesus and that is mind-blowing And I want you to think about it for a minute. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is not like this figure who existed hundreds and hundreds of years before he came into the world, but that Melchizedek is like Jesus who existed eons before Melchizedek existed. It's not simply, you see, that Jesus is the fulfillment of an Old Testament foreshadowing. It's that Melchizedek is shadowing, shadowing someone who existed long before he existed. You've got to get your Christology in place here. By the way, this is the one reason why some of the older interpreters go back to Genesis 14 and they see it either as a Christophany or a theophany, that is an appearance of Christ pre-incarnate, or an appearance of God. Some sort of pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ there in Melchizedek. But the point is that Melchizedek is a type. And the type always has the reality existing before the type comes into the world. And the type is there because the reality already existed. The author of Hebrews is pressing on us two massive truths about Jesus. He is eternal, therefore his priesthood is eternal. And he has, as God, the power of blessing us. What is the argument here? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Jesus' priesthood is according to Melchizedek. Therefore, he is greater than Abraham and Levi. And here's the take-home for us. That means because Jesus is greater than Levi in the Arianic priesthood, because Jesus is the real great high priest, because Melchizedek is like him. It's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek, but it is that Melchizedek is like him. Because of that, we can know two things about Jesus. First, he's eternal. And second, he has power to bless. Now look at how the author of Hebrews emphasizes that. Again, at verse 3, he talks about Melchizedek being without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end uh, of days or life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to priest forever. Now, what does that tell us? He is like the Son of God and having neither beginning of days nor end of life. The emphasis there is that Jesus is eternal. And whatever that means, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God in having neither beginning of days nor end of life. It emphasizes this, Jesus is an eternal priest. In fact, that's explicitly said, he continues a priest forever. Now why is that important? This congregation the author of Hebrews is writing to, some of them have been tempted to go back to Judaism. And somebody has made an argument to them. If you come back to Judaism, you're not going to lose anything from your heritage. If you come back to Judaism, you won't lose anything. Uh, You won't lose anything having given up being a Christian. And you won't lose anything religiously because you're coming back. You've got a high priest and you've got a promised Messiah. You won't lose anything. And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. That Old Testament priesthood was a faint foreshadowing of the real priesthood was just a picture of the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is the priest you need. He doesn't wear out, he doesn't tire, he doesn't falter, he doesn't fail. If you have sin, he lives ever lives to intercede for you. If you have sin, he died once for all so that your conscience can be clean. Those Old Testament sacrifices had to be offered year after year after year. Jesus once died, and then he ever lives to intercede for those who trust in him. Jesus is the priest we need. And Jesus' priesthood is eternal and perpetual. It never goes away, and it never wears out. One of my favorite scenes in the New Testament Is the scene of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and he lifts his eyes up to heaven and he sees Jesus standing now that's the only place in the Bible we see Jesus standing in the New Testament every time we see Jesus at the right hand in the New Testament how is he postured he's sitting why because that's the picture of a throne and the picture of reigning When you're sitting on a throne, you're reigning. Why would Stephen, as he died, why would he look up and see Jesus standing? Because if you look in the Old Testament, standing is the posture of prayer. When Moses is praying for the children of Israel in battle, he's standing with his hands outstretched, and he gets tired, and he has to have Aaron come along and keep him holding up. Sometimes when I pray, I stand with my arms outstretched. That's the posture of prayer. And what Stephen is seeing is Jesus at the Father's right hand interceding for him right at that moment of his need. And that's the great high priest you have. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he ever lives to intercede. You know, there's nothing better than being in union with Christ. There's nothing better than that. Not only does God tell us to pray, but He's put His Spirit within us that urges us to pray and prays for us without words according to the will of God. But not only does the Spirit enable us to pray, but there's Jesus at the right hand standing and praying for us. Now, some of you call the church office, and you should. And you ask us to pray for you, and we do, and that's good, and you should. But you need to remember that you can look up and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, praying for you, interceding for you. That's how much you are on his heart. Your names are written on his hands. You are identified with him, and he prays for you. And that's the great high priest we have if we trust Jesus. And not only that he's eternal, his priesthood is perpetual. It is Jesus is the one who blesses, the one who promises. Now get this. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it is God who blesses Abraham. In Genesis 14, it is Melchizedek blessing Abraham. What's going on? God is the one who blesses. God is the one who gives you true blessedness. The author of Hebrews is telling us that it is through Jesus that Abraham was blessed. It is Jesus the one who blesses. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. Why is that emphasized? Because the author of Hebrews is emphasizing that it is Jesus who is the one who is able to bestow upon us all of the blessings and promises of God. If you turn your back on Jesus, you're turning your back on the only one who can bestow all the promises of God On you. And I almost close with this. Because I may have one more thing to say. You thought it was over didn't you? There's a passage in John chapter 8. Verses 56, 57 and 58. Where Jesus is having a conversation with a Jewish leader. And he says these provocative words. Listen carefully. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And saw it and was glad. And the Jewish leaders were undone. They were furious. What are you saying, Jesus? You're not even 50 years old. And you're saying that Abraham, who lived thousands of years ago, rejoiced to see your day. How could that possibly be? And you remember what Jesus said before Abraham was what? I am. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they took stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. The author of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish Christian congregation Do you know? Do you know who, who it was who blessed Father Abraham? It was Jesus. Do you know where you can get the blessings of God's promises? Only in Jesus. If you turn your back on Jesus, you can't receive the blessings of God. You cannot because they are bestowed by Jesus. And Melchizedek is a picture of that, a foreshadowing of that, a prefigurement of that. And he points to the reality of the one who is to come who will be our great eternal high priest. So in our struggles and problems, in our fight with sin, the priest we need is the one who is eternal and perpetual. And when he blesses no one, no one can take those blessings away. So you see why the author of Hebrews has labored telling us these things about Melchizedek because he wants us to know that we have a great high priest. But there's more to this, and I'll do this as quickly as I possibly can given time constraints. There's a sense in which when we look at Melchizedek, His name and where he's from points to the great promises we received in Christ. I noted earlier that the comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus is an economical way of describing a person. And in the sketch of Melchizedek, we see the outlines of the Messiah. Who else but Jesus Christ fulfills what Melchizedek prefigures? Who else fills in the beautiful portrait first sketched by this holy man? Who else can be both a priest and king ruling in our hearts even as he upholds the heavens by his mighty word? Who else can be, um, who but Jesus combines such lofty power with meekness of spirit? Who else lives forever by the power of his own divine and eternal life? In whom else can we find such perfect righteousness and peace? Let me tell you something. When I used to read the word righteousness in the Bible, I did not like that word. (laughs) Because I knew what? I didn't have any. I mean, I was beginning to see this whole thing about righteousness. Every time I read it, it's just like a negative alarm goes off. Kind of like Martin Luther uh, felt the same way. Not that I'm comparing myself with him, but I've learned a lot from him. But righteousness was not a word that made me glad, but you know what? It's one of the sweetest words in all the Bible to me. Why? What changed? What changed is I understand where my righteousness comes from now. It is righteousness that is outside of me. It is alien righteousness. It is righteousness performed by someone outside of me for me. It is nothing inherent or subjective or inside of me. It is not me reaching character goals or me doing good things and arriving at a place where I've achieved a certain level of goodness and righteousness. No! The righteousness I have is the beautiful, perfect, glorious transcript and record of Jesus' life that comes to me by faith that clothes my ugliness and my nakedness. It is my beautiful dress. And it is mine as much as if I had done it myself. And when God looks at me He sees me as righteous as His Son. That's the hardest thing in the world for me to believe. The hardest thing. Because it's almost like I say, well, Lord, you and me both know. (laughs) I mean, we both know. He said, I know, son, but there's no way you could live with me outside of that. No way you could possibly ever live with me because I'm pure. But there's another thing. There's peace. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness from Salem. Shalom. Peace. And peace with God is based on righteousness righteousness always precedes peace I read a sermon one time by Charles Haddon Spurgeon on that subject and he convinced me for the rest of my life that the foundation of peace is righteousness why how can I stop warring against God out of my guilt and out of my anger and out of my fear I was at enmity with him I was at war with him but having received the righteousness Christ gives me The war is over. I'm accepted in the beloved. And all I'm going to receive from now on is peace. And peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Peace means holistically everything will be restored to harmony with God. We are so messed up. We are so messed up. We are so messed up. But the glory of the gospel is this. God's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. And we're going to be beautiful. C.S. Lewis once said, if you just saw one person who had been glorified by Jesus Christ, you would fall down immediately and worship them. You would stand in awe. We're going to be as beautiful as the stars in heaven one day. All because of our faithful and great high priest who is able to save, as Billy Sunday used to say, from the guttermost to the uttermost that's who Jesus is. So that's why Melchizedek is in the Bible. Not to make you, wow, we've got to figure this out. We've got to unriddle this riddle. We've got to uh, uh, clear up this enigma. We've got to pull the shroud off this mystery. No, you've got to look at Jesus. Because he is a big neon sign in the Bible pointing to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a great Savior, we have a great priest. How deeply we are moved to fully understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. And so, Lord, we pray that as we continue through the book of Hebrews, you will continue to show us our great high priest, who is our beauty, who is our loveliness, who is our acceptance with you. Now, Father, we pray as we continue to worship, we would give as those who know. We are accepted in the beloved. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.